when we come to the second chapter of 2 Samuel, we may assume that there is nothing stopping David from assuming the throne of Israel. What could possibly be in his way now, right? The villainous king Saul has been killed on the battlefield. He's no longer a threat to David. And David has expressed his grief over the loss of King Saul. Even though Saul was his enemy, he still grieved over him and gave thanks for the role that Saul played in the life of Israel. And he grieved over Jonathan, his best friend, the son of King Saul. So what could possibly stop David from becoming king of Israel now? Think again. As it happened, there were all kinds of problems. In fact, David was between a rock and a hard place. It's hard to see where he could go from here. As an outlaw in Israel, he had found refuge among the Philistines in a place called Ziklag. Well, his home in Ziklag, along with his 600 companions and their families, had been ransacked. It had been burned to the ground by the Amalekites. And so he didn't have a home to come back to in Ziklag. Plus, he was distrusted by the Philistines. After all, he is the man who killed Goliath, the giant. And so the Philistines are naturally suspicious of David and his motives. So remaining in Philistia doesn't really seem like a safe option. But if he crosses over into the land of Judah, then he doesn't exactly know what to expect. No one is flocking to David as king at this point. And in Judah, he's already been betrayed by his own people at least twice that we're told of in 1 Samuel. So he has no reason to believe that if he crosses into Judah that, that everything will be well. It seems as though there are no good options. So what to do? And sometimes our lives can be like that. And right now, so many people are asking, what do we do? What do we do when we don't know what to do? What do we do when we have absolutely no clue what we should do? Schools are trying to decide whether or not it's safe to meet in person, and they're trying to decide what that's going to look like. Parents are trying to make plans to decide whether or not they're going to send their children to school for any length of time or whether they're going to opt for some kind of online option or homeschooling option. What do we do? Governments are trying to make decisions because they know they want to reopen the economy as much as possible, but we are continuing to battle a virus. What do we do? Employers, businesses are trying to decide the extent to which they can safely open. And of course, for us, churches are trying to decide what does it look like to continue to minister in the midst of this pandemic? What do we do? especially when we have absolutely no idea what we should do. There is no good option. There is no option that does not carry with it certain risks 
and certain negative consequences. So what do we do? We do what we see in the life of David. I invite you to look with me at verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. When he found himself between a rock and a hard place, he cried out to God. What would you have me do, Lord? You've promised me that I am your chosen king over Israel, and yet I have the same number of followers now as I did before the death of Saul. I have just as many enemies, just as many problems, just as many threats now as I did before. Nothing has really changed in a sense. Yes, Saul is dead, but now what? Now what? He inquired of the Lord. He cried out to God. And you and I are called to do the same when we don't know what to do. When life becomes simply overwhelming, we can inquire of the Lord. And what does it mean to inquire of the Lord? To inquire of the Lord is to stop doing and start depending. Stop doing and start depending. Before we start strategizing or planning or plotting, before we start consulting, stop doing. Start depending upon God. And why is that? Well, we're reminded of the truth we read in Psalm 33, verse 11. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Whatever we do as human beings, no matter how good, no matter how praiseworthy, in the end, will come to nothing if it does not derive from God and God's power and God's sovereign plans. God foils the plans of the nations, but his plans stand firm forever. So we need to depend upon God to give us guidance, to show us where to go, to show us what to do or not do. That's step one. Because God's plans stand firm forever. And we're also reminded of the truth recorded in Psalm 25, where David gives us access to his heart. The heart that we're told is after God's own heart. What does David pray? In Psalm 25, verse 4, we read, Show me your ways, Lord. Your ways, not my ways. Teach me 
your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. That's what we want. That's the only thing we can do, really, when we find ourselves where David found himself when you don't know what to do. God, show me, guide me, teach me. God, I don't want to take another step. I don't want to make another plan unless you direct my path. Unless you go with me. So he inquires of the Lord. And so what we're going to see here is what it looks like for you and for me to depend upon the Lord. And I pray that on the other side of this message, you are empowered by the Spirit of God to depend upon God through whatever circumstance, through whatever situation you find yourself in, and that you're better prepared to avoid what we see in the character of Abner. Abner, the cousin of King Saul and the commander of Saul's army. Abner stands as a kind of foil against which we can contrast what we see in David, in David's dependence upon the Lord. So what does it mean to depend on the Lord? How can we do that? We depend on God's directions, not our preferences. We depend on God's directions and not our preferences. David inquired of the Lord and he said, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? God, do you want me to go home? In other words, David, of course, was from Bethlehem in Judah. And the Lord said, Go up. And David asked, where shall I go? Where specifically, Lord, do you want me to go? And God tells him to go to Hebron. Why Hebron? At least three reasons. The first is because Hebron was the largest town in Judah at this time. This is prior to Jerusalem becoming Jerusalem. We'll read about that later in 2 Samuel. At this time, Hebron is the largest town, the place with the greatest capacity to absorb David's companions and their families. A second reason is that one of David's wives, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, is a Calebite. What does that mean and why does that matter? Well, Caleb was one of only two Israelites who came out of Egypt that God said, you will be allowed to enter the promised land, the other being Joshua. And as a reward for Caleb's faithfulness and for his trust in God, he was given Hebron. And Abigail was married to Nabal, and we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 25 that Nabal was a Calebite. He's from this family. And so what does all that mean? Is It means that Abigail knows people. She is trusted in Hebron. This is a safe place for David to go to. 
Third reason is because Hebron was designated as a city of refuge. As we read in Joshua chapter 21, verse 13, so to the descendants of Aaron, the priests, they gave Hebron, a city of refuge for one accused of murder. Someone who has been accused of murder and who is not guilty can find safety in a city of refuge. This is one of the prescriptions that God gave his people in the law, that if you did not commit a crime, you could go to one of these cities and receive safety from another family member who might want to seek revenge. And David, to be sure, would have been accused of Saul's death. People would have said, David, you wanted him dead all along. David, somehow you were behind this. You were fighting with the Philistines. You've been a turncoat. And so God tells David to go to Hebron, which is a city of refuge where he will be safe. And David depends on God's directions. Now, as a side note, you may wonder, what about this business of having two wives? I thought marriage was between one man and one woman. What's up with this? Well, in Scripture, sometimes we learn by positive example and by positive statement, by proposition, by a clear teaching, do this, don't do that. And sometimes we learn by negative examples. And as it happens, polygamy, having multiple wives, is never praised in the Scriptures. On the contrary, it's often revealed to be a, a dysfunctional dynamic in families. And it runs contrary to what we see at the very beginning where God created male and female, one for the other. Now, what do we see with Abner? David depends on God's directions. What does Abner do? Abner, we're told, goes to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And what a wonderful name, Ishbosheth. I've never met anyone named Ishbosheth. Of all the biblical names, I have never met someone with that name. If you have, I'd love to hear about it. He goes to him. Why? Because he is part of the family of King Saul, and he is relying on what is familiar to him. He's trying to hold on to something that God has clearly rejected. God had rejected Saul as king of Israel through the prophet Samuel. He, is, he had told him flat out, I reject you, Saul. You have disobeyed me, and I have rejected you. You rejected me. I reject you. And if you needed any more evidence of that, you've got Saul's humiliating death at the hands of the Philistines at the very end of 1 Samuel. It is clear through both what God has said and through the circumstances that God has rejected the dynasty of Saul. And yet, and yet, Abner is trying to hold on to that. How often do you and I try to cling to what we know to be familiar instead of 
recognizing that God has turned the page on that. Either through what he said or through what he has revealed through circumstances. He's shown, look, that's a dead end. There's no hope there. There's no life there. And sometimes that's painful for us to hear because we want this relationship to continue. We want this job to continue. We want this particular set of circumstances to continue. And so we cling to that. We fight for that. And yet, do you recall the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? That is not where hope is to be found. But we need to know this about ourselves, that we will try to hold on to what is familiar for as long as we can. And for many of us in the midst of this pandemic, we've been told a lot, there's no going back to normal as we knew it. And so we have to adjust to a new normal. But how often do we resent the idea that we might need to change? And so many people say, I, I just can't get into this, this church on a screen thing. And as a result, they just check out. I just can't connect that way. So they just check out. And yet, God has revealed himself to be a God who sometimes can use painful events to wean us off of unhealthy dependencies. And worshiping with our brothers and sisters in Christ in person, physically gathered, that's a beautiful thing. But sometimes we can use that as a crutch. Sometimes we depend upon someone behind a pulpit to read the Bible for us and to explain God's Word for us instead of focusing on our relationship with God one-on-one. -on -one. It's been said, in fact, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning at church is one of the easiest places to hide from God. Let that sink in. And remember this. You may think, well, I mean, I would know exactly what to do if God gave me instructions that were this explicit and clear. Where do you want me to go, God? Hebron, great. On my way. Packing up now. And you say, I haven't had that experience. I don't hear a voice from the clouds. What am I supposed to do here? Fair enough. But what you do have is God's written word. And so before we start complaining about what we don't know, or complaining about what we think we need that we don't have, Let's start with what God has given. David didn't have the Scriptures as we have them. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the revelation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But we do. And while, no, the, the Scriptures are not a magic eight ball, you can't just find a place that tells you exactly what you want. We do have 
what God says about us and about himself and about the world and about our place in the world and what he wants us to do and what he wants us to avoid. And we need to depend upon that and stop trying to go our own way and just do something and make our own plans. Look, God has spoken. And you know that. Okay, I need to read the Bible more. Another guilt trip. I get it. And yet, how often do we spend more time reading the news, catching up with our friends on social media, reading all kinds of things other than the Word of God? And I've told you this story probably before. I had an agnostic professor who, would, who just reveled and enjoyed pointing out on the first day of class how many of you have read say, the Harry Potter series. How many of you have read this other lengthy series? Now, how many, and all kinds of hands go up in the classroom. Now, how many of you believe the Bible is the Word of God? All kinds of hands go up. Fair enough. Now, how many of you have read the whole Bible? Huh. Hmm. Far fewer hands. You know the value of the Bible. It's, it's not a matter of, of understanding that. It's, it's a matter of applying it. What scripture are you memorizing right now? What scripture is your family memorizing together right now? When was the last time your family had a conversation together about a scripture and talked through that and asked questions about it? Be honest. God's Word tells us to hide His words in our hearts so that we might not sin against Him. Depend on God's directions, not your preferences. Next, we see that we are to depend on God's designs, not our projects. Depend on God's designs, not our projects. David is obedient to what God says. He goes to Hebron, and he and his companions start populating both the main city of Hebron and the outer towns, the suburbs. And lo and behold, in verse 4, The men of Judah came to Hebron, and they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. God performs a miracle here. Yes, a miracle. These people who just a while ago were willing to betray David the outlaw are now anointing him king. Not king over the entirety of Israel. You'll remember the geography of Israel. In the south, we have the tribe of Judah. And in the north, we have the other tribes, the other 11. And we have Judah in the south. And David is only being proclaimed king of Judah. Nevertheless, People are recognizing David as king. We've known all along, ever since 1 Samuel 16, that 
David is God's chosen king. But now people are, are starting to form around him. And only God could bring about that kind of transformation in people. Now contrast that with Abner. What is Abner doing? Abner has his own project because he knows that inside of the prior regime, the dynasty of Saul, he is a commander, he is a general, he has power, he has influence. And he knows that if there is a new regime, if David comes to the throne, well, where does that leave him? He doesn't know. And so he would rather fight and, and claw tooth and nail to hold on to his position, to what is familiar, to, to his own personal ambition, rather than open himself up to a new day and a new work of God. And we have to ask the question of ourselves, what is driving us? Do we really believe that God can do even the impossible if we will just take that step of obedience? If we will just say, God, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the hard truth. Are you willing to be so dependent upon God that you can say, God, if I need to be considered a fool in the eyes of the world, if I need to be considered a failure in the eyes of the world in order to remain faithful to you, so be it. I would rather be a fool for my Savior than a success in the eyes of the world. Because I put my trust in God, and I believe that those who put their trust in God will ultimately never be put to shame, as we read in Psalm 25. And then look at how David seeks to be a peacemaker. Having seen an inkling of, of God's designs, people in Judah are starting to gather around him. He sends messengers to Jabesh Gilead, who had buried Saul. And where is this place? This place is actually in the north, not the south. And he says to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. And we're told about this in 1 Samuel 31. After Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines, their bodies were stripped, they were decapitated, their bodies were hung up to make an example out of them. The people of Jabesh Gilead bravely, bravely stepped forward, maybe out of a debt they owed to Saul earlier for how he had rescued them against their enemies, they stepped forward, took down the bodies, and buried them. And you might think, from just a worldly human standpoint, that David would not show this kind of kindness to people who were on the side of his enemy, Saul. And yet, he does. 
instead of carrying out vengeance against those who sided against him, look at his kindness and his generosity, the same kindness that we see in the Lord who shows kindness even toward the wicked, giving us a foreshadowing and a foretaste of the words of Jesus Christ. I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. And yet Abner, because he's relying on his own personal ambition and he can't see God's designs and he doesn't trust in God's designs and he doesn't depend on God's designs, he is dividing Israel. He's setting the stage for a civil war in Israel. And in the end, this is where personal human ambition leads. When we are devoted and dependent upon our own projects, there will be division. Because you want what you want, and I want what I want, and you see what you see, and I see what I see. And there will be division when that is our guiding light. But for those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, we are called to set aside our personal projects and our personal ambition. We are called to consider others better than ourselves. We are to have the same mindset, the same attitude as our Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you say today, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how much you don't know what to do, no matter how much you feel between a rock and a hard place, God, not my will, but yours be done. Now that David has shown kindness even to his enemies, we see how he is depending on God's defense, not his own preservation. And we are called to do the same. We depend on God's defense, not our own preservation. Because here's the reality of the situation. Yes, David has come home. Yes, David has followers. Yes, he has been anointed king of the tribe of Judah. Yes, these people have confirmed in their anointing what God had already done back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. All that's true. But, Who's in the majority and who's in the minority? David is still in the minority. Why? Because only one tribe, one tribe out of 12, has anointed him king. All the rest are consolidating around the descendant of Saul. They're going with what is familiar. They're going with what seems more safe. They're going with what they know. And for Abner, this is certainly where he feels safe. He is a general. With David, he's not promised anything. He's not guaranteed anything. He is worried about his own preservation, his own life. 
And I wonder for you, how much of your life and, and how, how many of the decisions that you make are driven by majority opinion? While God can certainly reveal his will and speak through consensus, God can certainly be glorified by consensus, and we can give thanks for that. We also need to remember that majorities are often wrong. And if your faith in God is propped up by a majority, or at least a sense that you're in the majority, you're in for a very rough ride. Especially right now, when our connection is limited to screens and phones. And yet, as we see in David's life, God can use this. God can strip away all those things that you've been leaning on that you've been using as a crutch. He strips all of that away so that you can more firmly depend on Him, on His directions, on His designs, and on His defense. If you're the only Christian who remains faithful in your household, in your network, in your city, in your nation, Will you still depend on God? That's the test. Abner felt more comfortable while he was in the majority. Often Christians complain these days that not as many people go to church. Faith and religion doesn't seem to have the same cultural influence that it did at one time. But instead of griping and complaining about that, what if we start asking, what is God teaching us through this? What if we ask that question in any crisis? Instead of saying, ah, oh, how long is this going to last? God, how long? When is it going to be over? What if we said, God, teach me through this pain, through this confusion, Guide me in your ways. Teach me your ways. Direct my paths. I want to learn. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to put aside all of my assumptions about what I think should be and the way things ought to be. And I'm going to say, God, teach me. I want to come and sit at your feet. And even more than that, I, I want you to fill me. God, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything without your going with me. And it is absolutely vital that we come to this point because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, shows us that when it comes to our lives as sinners before a holy and righteous God, 
There is nothing that we can do. We don't know what to do, and there's nothing that we can do to bridge the chasm between us and our failures and our regrets. And the things that we've done that we should not have done and the, the things that we left undone. And God, who is holy, who is good, who is righteous, always, we can't do anything. Stop trying to do something to establish your self-worth before Him. Rather, depend Start depending more and more and more on the only one who can do something about it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in between sinners and a holy and righteous Father, and who absorbed the punishment that we deserved, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Depend on Him. Turn to Him. Rely on Him with every fiber of your being, not just one day, but for your entire life until the day you die. Depend on Him. Do you feel like in your life right now you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to go? Meet Christ there. Meet Christ there. He's available. He's available. And his kindness and his love and his mercy and his grace is available to be given to you right there. Would you receive it? Would you say, yes, Lord, your will be done, not mine and my life. That all starts by saying yes to Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Yes, I can't save myself from my sins or for the, from the judgment of God. I need you. Would you say that today? I pray that you would as we all learn to depend more and more on God, our Savior. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the striking contrast between David and Abner. And while we know they were both sinners, we thank you for the saints who have gone before us, from whom we can learn and be inspired and challenged. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us as we encounter your living word, that we would be transformed that we would depend upon you more and more, no matter what trials we face. And I pray, Lord, that as we depend on you, that you would give us the wisdom and the guidance and the discernment that only you can give. We pray all these things in the name of the one who leads us onto eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions, if you have any burdens or prayer concerns, please reach out by email. Thank you for watching.